Hello and welcome to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, the founder and director of Liminal, Louise Fitzjohn. podcast is an opportunity to speak to the contemporary artists I'm exhibiting in my Margate-based art gallery. With an exciting program of solo and group exhibitions, hosting this podcast is a fantastic way to delve deeper into the artist's practice and to probe their innermost thoughts about their exhibitions. Liminal Gallery was founded in April 2021 and works with contemporary artists currently practising across the UK and Ireland, showing the incredibly diverse creatives that are based here. I've been working in the art world for over a decade and I'm incredibly passionate about fully supporting the artists that I work with and I spend most of my time trawling through social media to find artworks which blow my socks off. The artists I work with have an approach which I haven't seen before, a unique talent which spans across the mediums. I'm so excited to share these artists with you as we have in-depth conversations exploring the artists' lives and works into what makes them tick and what gets a ticking off. So I hope you'll join me both on this podcast and down in Margate where you can see the exhibitions of these artists in person. I'm delighted to share that the sixth guest on the Liminal Gallery podcast is with contemporary artist Alexis Sol Gray, who currently has a solo exhibition entitled Dancing in the Dark, which opened on the 7th of January in Liminal Gallery. I first started working with Alexis in 2020 and was immediately taken by her work. Having lost my dad just two years before, I recognise the grief and melancholy that permeates her canvases. But there is so much more to it than that. There is a feverish energy, a passion, violence, but so much love. Her paintings explore what it is to be human and to have experienced love and everything else that comes with that privilege. Often working in oils on canvas, linen or found paper, including knitting patterns and catalogue pages, they can be loose, abstracted moments while others are tight realism. She often creates through destruction, working into and over a painting until it is almost destroyed in pursuit of the final image. Working in layers, she deliberately interrupts images through obstruction as an attempt to create a visceral representation of the thought process. Alexis Gray lives and works in Devon and is currently studying for her Masters in Painting at the Royal College of Art, set to graduate later this year in 2023. She is an alumni of the Royal Drawing School, having completed the postgraduate drawing year between 2006 and 2007. Her undergraduate degree is in drawing from Camberwell College of Art, where she graduated in 2003 after completing a foundation course at Central St. Martin's College of Art. Sol Gray has held lecturing positions in universities, worked as an independent curator and is a 2021 and 2022 recipient of the Elizabeth Greenshields Foundation Grant for Painting. She has recently been artist-in-residence at Exeter Phoenix Gallery and Artist House Kadanauka in Poland. In 2022, she had her first international solo show at Wetterling Gallery in Stockholm. And her work is held in private collections across the world. And now I am incredibly privileged that she is exhibiting with me at Liminal Gallery. 
Alexis Solgray. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Louise. Nice to be here. Primarily, your work explores grief and loss centered around the tragic passing of your mother. This loss of a person, of an identity, of a future and a mourning of the past feeds into your work with a soft melancholy. Do you see your work as a place to navigate your history or do you use it to steer your future? I actually don't think it's about my history particularly, but more about um, trying to certainly navigate the future, but almost to forget the history. Making the work is almost like a distraction or uh, a procrastination to try and numb maybe my past. I never use images or direct references to my own past, but obviously other people's and all of ours in a way. But I think it is a way to um, navigate the future sort of day by day, um, one painting, one work at a time, like a daily ritual almost, try and um, stay on track maybe. I love that, that it's a procrastination. I'd never really thought about it in that way. Yeah, almost like it's not, I'm never quite doing the real work, but of course it is real work, but it always feels like, a practice or a nearly there but not quite and that's why you keep going otherwise I guess you would stop finding the answers I'm not particularly interested in going back to any kind of past because it is the work is fueled by the past but the work is fueled by a sort of heartbreak and loss which you've just spoken about and lots of people know this about my work but it fuels it. It's like a beating heart, but it, I don't reference it directly so much now. And actually, I have only made three or four kind of direct references to something more biographical. And they're so personal, I can't sort of show them or let go of them, really. Um, or they're too sad. So those works. There, there are some, but they tend to be in my private kind of archive and drawers. I don't often offer them out to shows because they sort of sit as a kind of anomaly almost. It's there. It, they sit there they, and they gather, but there's not many of them. And is that the case for the artwork that I used for the print edition as well? Yes, exactly. So that print that we have recently done together unusually is from a photograph that I took of a family member. It's the daughter of my cousin, Alice. Um, my cousin Alice, I used to paint when I was in my undergraduate. Alice was like my muse. Um, and I painted her, I took photographs of her, lots and lots of works. And I had a solo show called Happy Birthday Alice, and it was all these big paintings of watercolour and paper. They were about they were about nine, ten foot high, and they were hung in a round. It was her birthday house, and it was of her. And now I have her daughter. And so it's the first time I'd made a painting so directly of a family member. And then I just couldn't sell the original, and I'd given the original to Alice. And so the print was created as an alternative. Yeah, I love it. It's such a beautiful piece as well. There's just such a soft tenderness about it. Yeah, it's funny because that one came really easily with me. I think when I do, this came straight from the heart, through through the hands, and it was there quite quickly. I didn't struggle with it. 
So you once said to me, you felt your work could be the work of multiple artists, that different sides of your practice felt so far apart. Um, as I said earlier, while some paintings feature tight, flat realism, others are really experimental, abstract and loose. Have you changed your opinion now? And do you feel that they are unified? I have changed my opinion. And I think one of the experiences I've, I've had going back to sort of art school as a proper grown-up and on the MA now is that I've come with this kind of longer history than some other students have and therefore just more life experience and um, come with this sort of compost heap um, of stuff which is fermenting and you can't really decipher one from the other. I remember hearing someone talk, I can't remember, I was listening to something on the radio and a writer was talking about this um, compost heap theory, whereas as you grow older, you put things on this compost heap and um, then one day you have to kind of pull it apart and use it somehow. And I really like that analogy with my own work. And when I started the MA, kind of the first tutorials I had, I sort of found myself being apologetic for this. You know, oh gosh, you know, well, I can paint, I paint like this, but then um, I'll make a painting like this or, and it feels like a different artist with different hands. But actually people started saying to me, not only tutors, but curators as well, that that's the strength in my work. And that the fact that nobody knows what I'm going to make next is what, for some people, makes them interested in working with me. I know the next large solo show I have in the summer in Los Angeles, the gallery there, they're particularly interested in that very specific thing where I actually don't know what I'll make when I go to the studio. I, I very rarely plan my work. And sometimes if I do plan, I'll completely discard it and pick something else up. So I think that creates this sort of unknown element of you know what I'm going to create. But in terms of the different disciplines and how they link together, I have now been able to articulate that they are they're sort of codependent. So they it's like a rhythm, like the body, like organs. So you know you're breathing, but you're not thinking, but then you're doing something very consciously. And I see them as a whole kind of body a little bit, and also how that obviously the fragmentation of the work, the kind of flitting between, is a little bit like in my research where I talk about fragmented memory and how we recall sights and sounds and we replay things over and over. So there are constants in my work, but then interferences. And I understand that as a language now and not a problem. And a language that I can be fouled of rather than apologise for. Some people who don't know me very well or are new to me as an artist don't understand that, but it takes time just to have that conversation. Yeah, and I think it, I see it as a strength rather than negative. And I don't think that will change. And one thing, you know, I've been encouraged now by Royal College of Art tutors and gallerists, art advisors, curators I work with, all of them say, don't ever change that. To keep that rhythm, that unknown, because then you'll never get boxed into a style. And nobody's ever going to say, oh, I love these paintings. Can you make 10 of them? 
because I'll just simply say, well, no, I'll make, I'll, there'll be one like that, but I probably won't make 10, you know, I might make another one next year. But I, I, I'm comfortable with that now. I'm not a machine. Authenticity is really important to me and what, what to practice is and what it isn't and not being boxed in for a certain type of success in the art world or for um, financial you know, certainty that works will sell or whatever. That stuff is important, but I don't want it to drive me. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I really am. Because I think that you're right. Authenticity as an artist is so important. And that's the thing that maybe a lot of younger artists aren't so aware of or don't have the confidence to say no. When a gallery approaches them and says, make art like this, and they're going against their natural intuition, that's what breaks an artist. That's they get stuck into that little box and they can't break out of it because collectors aren't interested. And it's really hard to say no. And I and I really understand it because there is a group of collectors who will always buy my more abstract work. But then there's probably a group of collectors who might prefer the more representational figurative work. But I can't please, it's not about pleasing everybody at all. But I think if you do get locked into a gallery's vision of how you can be marketed, um, yeah, it's it's a slippery slope, and I just have found myself. I'm almost glad I haven't graduated into this feverish thirst for figurative painting. I'm kind of glad I haven't graduated at sort of 22, 23 into this this world because when I graduated, you know, painting wasn't really a thing. No one was painting. My degree in, even though I I was interested in figurative painting and I did paint. And I did work figuratively, but during my undergraduate at Camberwell at the time, I was I went um, further into photography. It was my main mode of oh, work really? at the time. Yeah, and actually, my one of my tutors, who I was so lucky to have, Kathy Pilkington, who's a very incredible sculptor, she she was really influential for me. And I remember her saying that my photography was my best work. It kind of stayed with me. And every year I keep thinking, well, I must get a new camera. So I had this, my, I had my granddad's old a, a Canon A1 camera and I took all my photographs on this analog SLR, which I loved. And then um, accidentally threw it into a river in um, 2010. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and a friend of mine, so she was next to me and she immediately stripped off and jumped into the river to get no. it. Thought, oh my God, amazing. What a hero. Yeah. <laughs> By the time she got it out and she did, it was So yeah, photography as a research tool is so heavily present in my work. Photography is, and paper ephemera, but the still image, whether it's a photograph or from a knitting catalogue or from a children's illustration book, whatever it is, the photographic image is so important to my practice that I keep, you know, I probably should get a camera again. But I also like the anonymity of the found image. So I don't know, I'm not sure, it could just be a distraction. But yes, I'm kind of glad I haven't um, graduated into this, this crazy first figures of painting because I think it could have been really distracting. And maybe the art world is difficult to navigate, even at I'm 42 now. It's difficult for me. I've learned so much in two years. I've made so many mistakes. You have to grow a bit of a thicker skin. And I think if you're in your early 20s, 
and your sense of self, which I am, it would be so much harder. And maybe put me off forever. You know, I might have gone, right, well, I'm not doing this. I'm going to go and be a teacher or work in fashion or work as equally as awful. But yeah. I feel kind of grateful that I'm at the stage I am. I think it was meant to happen like this, that I'm, I am now making work. And I don't think it was the right time for me then because I had to navigate life. The 20, 20s were difficult and 30s I just spent having children, you know, just absolutely full-time parent all the way through until about, you know, 39 when I, my youngest went to school and then I was like, okay, let's do this. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? I had no confidence in myself, you know, no confidence in myself as an artist whatsoever. And that was only sort of two, two years ago, really. So a lot has changed for me. And how did you start from taking all that time away? How did you get back into it? Well, I've always made work, but it was this kind of sporadic fits and starts where my husband would take the children on a Sunday morning to the zoo and I'd go into a tiny space, whether it was the kitchen table or the corner of a bedroom. And I, and I made a couple of paintings and I made lots of things in sketchbooks and kind of small work on paper. And then when um, my youngest daughter started reception, which was the September 2019, I started an MA at Plymouth College of Art, actually. And then in the sort of February, I had to withdraw from the course because, of course, the pandemic meant the children were at home and I, I just couldn't do anything. And my youngest child was having a really, really difficult time, like profoundly hard. And um, I had to abandon everything. But what that meant was that I started working at home in this kind of crazy feverish way. And I think Instagram was having a heyday during that sort of first, especially six months of the pandemic when everything was just turned in on these digital squares. And um, it was the place everyone was looking at art. And it was this kind of amazing leveling situation. And that's when I started to get a little bit of attention in drips and drabs and it just sort of started to grow from there really and I sold a few things through artist support pledge not that many I sold maybe 10 pieces you know looking back you know I'm glad I did because that it gave me a bit of confidence that people would want to own my work that maybe it had some value and I would never discount the fact that that did have a really it, it started to light something up inside me and, you know, just little bits like that. And then I got invited to sell my work online on certain platforms. And, you know, looking back, you might think, oh, that, you know, maybe that's not the best thing to do. But it's a journey. And um, every step counts. And actually, someone asked me yesterday, oh, do you think I should do this with an online platform? I said, well, do you know what? Yes, actually, because I sold everything. And it gives you confidence. And one thing leads to the next. And you know, you never know who's going to see your work and actually just getting it out there is just as valuable as anything else often, I think. And not to be snobby about things, not to be too snobby, especially if your work is, you know, needing to be seen. I think it's okay to face it in different spaces. Yeah. And I remember listening to a lot of podcasts during that first year of the pandemic and listening to Jenny Sigurds on Great Women Artists and listening to her talk about her experience through, um, I think it was Twitter, that's how she got discovered. Oh, really? Yeah. 
But I was going to ask you about the fact that your work often refers back to religious iconography and Italian Renaissance painters. So what draws you to this imagery and why do you want to recreate it in your own voice? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a bit more recently. So I've always been really drawn to Renaissance painting, late medieval painting, and the Mannerist traditions of paintings, kind of like, like Crivelli and these kind of elongated, um, impossible, beautiful images. And I kind of have just realised that maybe there's a relationship between these impossibly beautiful images of mother and child and the kind of the 1960s, 50s, 80s images that I'm drawn to in more modern photographic the images that I'm I'm finding, I think there is a relationship between the two. And I think that I'm not religious, but I'm not not religious. You know, I have no particular stance. I grew up in a non-religious household. For me, they are part of my aesthetic world, um, just like a picture of Rihanna might be. And I don't think that it's um, wrong to pick up images wherever they're from. I've even worked on like found Bible pages. But the thing is, I've not ripped up a Bible that has been on a bookshelf and cared for for a long time. When I have worked on Bible pages, the Bible was found at the dump. So someone had taken it to the dump and I had rescued it. But these kind of sacred images, I think, have a relationship to the attempt at this perfect family image that that I often use from the sort of 50s, 60s and 80s. Um, they're staged as well, so these kind of impossible lighting, you know, the way the skin is illuminated, a little bit like a photographic studio would be, like the way the light is supposed to make them all look bright and perfect. And so maybe I see a relationship between the two that I've never really thought about before. It's the artificial stance, which I'm interested in, the stagedness of it, the attempt to make something look real and its relationship with photography of course because lots of these images I'm drawn to are uh, portrait paintings of, of people. The first time I ever worked from a historical painting was from a Bronzino Medici portrait. Almost like a technical exercise you know. I was like oh could I do that? And I copied it and I was like oh a little bit, you know, that wasn't too bad. But I think it's this illumination skin and its relationship to the fakery. Yeah, I think particularly with like the mother and child imagery, they're possibly clean and pristine. And it's such a not clean and pristine notion. Motherhood is totally not that, but it's the virgin and child and they're they're presented in this way like you say I'd never really put the two together but the 1950s 1960s uh, commercial imagery that we were kind of force-fed it's the same that same principle and historical religious and narrative painting it was for everybody wasn't it it was the way that they talked yeah when you asked me that question I've never really obviously they're also deeply melancholic and I think, you know, in the medieval times, in the Renaissance period, 
people were losing children and um, family members all the time. I mean, it's quite an obvious thing that death was so much embedded in culture in a way that obviously it isn't now. And maybe I find some kind of solace in, in that period of time. When I first looked at those paintings and used them, I was incredibly unhappy, incredibly depressed actually, and unsupported in my life. I didn't really have, you know, without going into too much detail, but life was not easy. And I think I was just looking for something. Maybe I was looking into religion in a way that I was trying to find some kind of solace in the images. Mm. And um, you said that you had originally painted almost as a painting exercise. And so now when you paint them, because I had a piece in the Mattress Sense exhibition uh, that was a Crivelli painting. And so is it quite a faithful reproduction? Do you kind of study the work and paint from it? Or is there a moment where you take that away and let your own intuition take over? Normally, I will draw looking at the painting to start with, and it's quite important to me to get a, get a, a fairly accurate representation. But yeah, and then I'll put it away, and then I'll, I usually change the colours and add things in. In that painting you're referring to, it has like a hand that's like pulling up the child as if it's a puppet. Um, it's a starting point, very much like any of my found imagery. I am still drawn to, to working from historical paintings, but I am always questioning the worth of it. There's a painting of mine called Pilgrim, which was in my solo show at Wesleyan Gallery in Stockholm, which was the first time I had worked, I think it's Botticelli, actually, the female head. I go to like National Gallery and I take photographs and just kind of pinch with me. And it was the first time I'd actually then used bleach and destruction in one of those paintings. Oh, really? Yeah, so usually if I use an image from a religious iconographic painting, I won't destroy it. So something that, so ideas of iconoclasm, so the destruction of the, the icon, whether it be from an 80s knitting pattern or whether it be a reproduction of a, a religious mother and child, this need to destroy has for the first time come in to one of the kind of reproductions of a historical painting. So maybe it's in its infancy in a sense, because before they kind of sit on their own as a nominee a little bit, but um, perhaps they're going to come in and uh, become part of this sort of destructive iconoclasm. It's, I don't know if that's the word actually, iconoclastic. <laughs> I don't know. I get I get that word um, spoken about a lot in sort of tutorials and crits. This need to create through destruction has obviously become a really big part of my practice in the last year. I'm so excited by it because anything can happen, and I love that. And it came, you know, genuine need to just get to a point where you're like. This is so shit. Well, it's, it's probably not shit, but like it's just a, a copy of a picture. And I'm like, what did actually, there's nothing to it. So, out of pure frustration, 
and desperation about what to do with the work. That's how it started, it's literally attacking it. What the hell? I'm going to burn it. Has become this incredible tool for creation, and I'm very excited about it. But maybe the additional images. I think I'm at the beginning of that journey of then coming into that more action-based sort of space of the practice. I think everything is coming together, and I think maybe like the next year or two, I hope that I've made the best paintings I've ever made in my life with the resin. I'm beginning to really understand and to be able to synthesize all of these different aspects. Mm. They don't always have to be separate. I think they're coming together, and I think that's where the practice is going, where all of these different elements, they are one language, but I think when they come together in one space, that's where I'm really excited. Right now, that's what I'm excited about, about all of these different elements coming together, this kind of crazy collage of, of references, modes of working. And actually, the kind of the more traditional figurative flat paintings that I think you described as sitting amongst the destroyed works, the, the reworking and allowing them to just sort of be collaged in, I think is probably where the work's going next. I think that your practice is a reflection of being human. You know, no one is just one thing. All of those works can coexist in a space and come together because we're all made up of multiple layers there's multiple sides depending on who you're speaking to you speak in a certain way you're never the exact same person all the time depends on your situation and I think that your practice really encompasses that and I feel so grateful for that as well because that's happened by default you know I've not carved that out for myself it just has happened I think because I've come through this part of my career a little bit later um, and I feel so grateful because there is no censorship. If I want to make a sculpture, I'm going to make a sculpture. I'm going to make some prints. I'm going to make some prints. I'm going to make a painting that looks completely nothing like anything I've done before. Absolutely fine. I love that freedom um, because it allows me to use the work in a kind of highly experimental way, which is very um, therapeutic. You know, and that's something that comes out a lot. You know, is your work an act of therapy and it definitely is you know I'm much happier now than I've probably ever been in my life despite having lost years of you know the later part of my 20s from like 25 to kind of 30 I was deeply unhappy and uh, couldn't I didn't really make work I did make work actually not, not much of it's been kept. I got rid of a lot of work. I destroyed a lot of stuff. But I feel like I'm able to express anything. And that it's just, and that be your job just feels like the biggest privilege. You know, the fact is that this now is my full time job and I don't need money from anywhere else. Like, I can't believe the freedom that. That allows you and, and as an artist if you can do that it's such I am deeply aware of the privilege of that. I have worked incredibly hard to get to that point but it's also it's always a little bit of a lock 
you know, and it's always a little bit of like, oh, there's the world coming to and I'm not going to, and it does help, you know, these things do help. It's a bit of a strategic plan, <laughs> but also it's always such a privilege to just come in here, do whatever I like, and leave and go and pick up my beautiful children. And, and I do have a really wonderful family life now, which underpins everything I do. You know, it's just such a safe space for me. And I think that's really important. I have such a, personally, I have a very safe space, which I'm really determined to protect that, you know, all the time. If things are too busy, I will say to people that this is too much. I can't, I, this is really important. Or the children have to come to the show. They have to come to the dinner, you know. They are part of my life and I think that safety now, having my own family and that love and protection at home and the support from my husband in particular, having that has allowed me to do everything that I'm doing. Um, I take risks. I'm much more of a risk taker and I think that's because I feel safer. That makes a lot of sense. Also, you have worked really hard for this. No one has given it to you. Saw that you shared um, a really interesting article about the lack of working class artists. It's just being taken over by the privileged few who can afford to be full time artists. And it's a really, really sad reality. And the beautiful thing is that you've worked bloody hard for it. You haven't pulled connections from family or whatever <laughs> been bankrolled no no connections um um no posh parents <laughs> i you know i was privileged as a child because my parents both sort of were interested in art and design and my mum worked in art and design so when i was taken to see art there were art books in the house and that is a great privilege on its own but in terms of like from a monetary point of view yeah when i graduated even if I'd wanted to be a full-time artist, which of course I did, I couldn't. I, I couldn't afford a studio. I had to do like three, sometimes four jobs in London just to survive, just to pay my rent. I couldn't then rent a studio. I mean, what kind of world is that? That I could never have done that. Yeah. And there wasn't really anything. I remember looking at like the Beaux Arts Trust and they had these like live workspaces, but I was too too busy working for cash to like apply to stuff sometimes as well it's just hard living in london you know and that was in like 2003 i graduated it's hard living in london then and it's a hell of a lot harder living in london now i've actually only had like a professional studio a proper i've had them on and off just sporadically but i've only had a constant professional studio for two years wow really yeah, because I could never afford one before. Genuinely, ever. If I had been gifted a studio or had some kind of a house big enough to have a good space to work in, which I've never had either and still don't, we're tripping over ourselves in the house we rent. You know, this year, this year coming, it's like, right, come on, we're going to buy a house. And I don't know if we ever, I don't know that we will again this year, but. Money is such a problem, and my mother actually, she works in arts education, and she set up a national charity to try and reach those people who might ever enter arts education. She was really trying hard to break down barriers, trying to widen participation across the UK, 
and she set up a nationwide charity which was bringing all the art schools together to discuss this problem to to make changes and she was at the height of her career actually and things were really starting to gain traction when she um, sadly died from cancer um, you know very quickly after diagnosis and I think it was a great loss and I remember the people that she was working with at University of the Arts London and across the UK and she was giving papers and lectures in the US at the time just before she um, went into hospital and realized that she was so unwell she was doing great things she was trying to change things so i was always acutely aware of the problems the barriers in the art world and in arts education but ironically those barriers were sort of there for me too despite the fact that i had quite a sort of easy entry to arts education because i came from a, a sort of arty household i suppose but beyond that i couldn't afford to be an artist I couldn't do it. Um, and I suppose you do, two full-time working parents, even though I suppose that it's sort of middle class in that sense, that it was like, but there was cultural richness in my home. So yeah, they were both bloody working hard full-time and I remember them running out of money and, you know, we weren't poor, but, you know, to, to come out of art school and to survive as a full-time artist, you've got to have serious money behind you. And you've got to not be working, basically. Yeah, it's pretty impossible. I studied fine art at university and did the same thing. I um, got a couple of commissions, realised that I was annoying all of my housemates by working on stuff in the living room and just working. I think I was working like three or four jobs, just trying to support myself just so that I could pay the rent and buy some food and go out with some friends every every week and and then so who's got yeah. time to make art after that it's difficult to yeah navigate the art world and it's it's set up for the elite isn't it it is and it's difficult because that section of the art world is also really important because it sort of underpins it as well we all need collectors we need these advisors we need the people who are part of it but I wish there was just more, more done to try and nurture talent that gets lost every single year. Students who could be incredible artists, who probably never even get to do beyond 16, because they're just, there's no infrastructure to, to find that talent in this country. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same in many different areas and sports and music and particularly at the moment, you know. I remember in 2003 and we still, you know, still had the Labour government and I remember I had friends who were in a band in South London and after we all graduated, some of them just sort of went on the dole just because they so they could make music and they were making music. They were making incredible music. And people were doing that. You can't do that. I'm not saying that's necessarily the right way to do it, but I think, you know, that there should be support for um, artists across fine art, music, acting, all of this. There's nothing. There's nothing to harbour that talent and to look after it unless you've got absolutely shitloads of money or your parents know people who can help you out. 
sad, isn't it? And then you get to 42 and you're like, oh, do you want to buy my paintings? Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Bloody hell, I've, been, I've had no money and no confidence all of this time. Um, everyone has their different journeys. But I'm grateful for mine and I'm making work now because maybe it was, I always felt that it was my path, but my God, so many times I doubted that I would ever be a professional artist. And I suppose that's what I can call myself now because it's my only source of income. And I just can't believe I'm here. And I suppose, you know, and I'm here in a really modest way. You know, I'm still in a modest studio. I'm at stage, but I don't know where I'm going to go next. But I am so grateful for it, Louise. Honestly, I cannot tell you because I have grafted so much. Yeah, I can see it. I mean, I was still teaching last year part time on a foundation. How are you? And, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, wow, it was the right decision. I love teaching. And actually, one of the reasons I started the MA at the Royal College was so that I could teach at degree level. Really enjoy teaching so much. But I mean, I just wouldn't have time to do it now. I couldn't meet the exhibitions that I agreed to do. I was teaching in any way. Sadly, but, you, you know, painting all day is quite nice too. So as well as working on canvas, you also work onto vintage ephemera, which we spoke about earlier, painting over the figures to give them your own envisaged identity and landscape. You previously said, my mum was a textile designer, and I think all of the women and children I use are symbolic of us. We have spoken about using this as a tool for unpacking trauma, and I wondered if you could tell me about that. Yeah. So I started collecting these kind of knitting patterns and books about knitting from um, the 1980s and early 90s. I started collecting them, they just kind of sat around in my studio, like little mascots, you know, like cheering me on, but I wasn't doing anything with them. And I didn't know why I collected them. And then during, again, during the pandemic, <laughs> everything happened at the beginning of 2020, like Christmas Eve. I actually remember the moment I was, having a really hard time like we all were um and I used to go into this like we've got this sort of converted garage in our garden which the landlord calls a bedroom but it isn't at all so during the pandemic we moved me in there basically to sort of use it as a studio and one day I was particularly pissed off or upset about something and I just grabbed these images and started feverishly like rubbing them out and then painting over them with almost black oil paint and then letting them kind of set a bit and then removing them and seeing it happened very very organically again it was a kind of an attack and then I started to recognize that there was an amazing person in my life that year called Diana Gravina, who is a co-director of Procreate Project to support artists who identify as mothers. And I got shortlisted for something called the Mother Art Prize. I didn't get into the final thing, um, which I was heartbroken about. You know, it was the first thing I'd entered for ages. Um, but then Diana came to me and said, would you like to be mentored? I'd love to mentor you for free. And so she mentored me for about five, six months for free. 
And at the beginning, I was so lacking in confidence. I could barely look her in the eye in the Zoom calls. You know. And we started talking about the work and what I was doing. And it became, I started to understand that I was using these materials. These, these materials I was picking up what had a kind of bodily reference to my mother. There was a tactile reference as well as a visual. This It's about knitting, it's about warmth, it's about the intention to make something of comfort. I can't knit, you know, but my, my mum did. As a textile designer, she actually did printed textiles, but I remember her knitting a jumper for me when I was about five five years old and I remember her presenting it to me. It was this ridiculous, it was beautiful, multicolored mohair. And you know, mohair is so scratchy and uncomfortable. And I remember I hated it, but I wanted to love it. So she knitted, it's a very early memory there. And I remember in her wardrobe at home, there was this knitted skirt, this long knitted, beige skirt and matching jumper. And there's this kind of bodily presence of the way it was hung. It was really coveted. It was her best. It would often come out at Christmas with the red lipstick. And you know more than anyone the depth of the, the impact the loss of her had on my life. And Having proofread my dissertation, of course, I've been an excellent editor for me. You know it inside out. But there, I hadn't put the two together. The choice of the ephemera, these materials I was picking up, and their connection to something implicit, something very known, something very felt of a memory. And slowly I've begun to understand that and be able to unpack that. And then I started to understand that the imagery I was working with, the, the images I was really drawn to, are from the sort of the late 1950s to the early 1960s, which is when she was a child. And then I reference the 1980s to the early 90s, which is when I was a child. And I, ha I didn't use it consciously. But obviously, my subconscious longing was almost kind of needing to find pictures, needing to reconnect with a period of time which I was familiar with. So I'm obviously familiar with my own childhood of the 80s and the early 90s to my mother's childhood, which I only know through photographs and through cultural ephemera. So, Yes, they do relate directly, but it that wasn't intentional. It was a very subconscious act of collecting. And um, I do collect a lot. You know, I have, in, I'm in my studio now, and there's a sort of like a little cubby hole storage unit in the back there. And inside there is boxes full of little girls' dresses. And um, the dresses are always from the same period. So they're from the 80s to the early 90s. And then children's shoes and textile objects from the 1950s and the early 60s. I collect them. I don't know what I'm going to do with them. 
And I feel like at some point I will know. Uh, maybe it will be sculptural, or maybe I'll use them. I have been thinking about doing some still life work, setting up still life in the studio, using these physical objects as a way to create 3D worlds, which I can then work from life into the painting. That's something that excites me. But yeah, they have this bodily presence. I understand that now, and it hasn't put me off using them. I just search more and more for them. Like I'm searching for her in these pictures, you know, I know she's not there. But they are a sort of an attempt to create new memories, an alternative ending. Or, you know, she was, even though we were incredibly close, and obviously losing her was devastating. And, you know, she, she died through assisted suicide, which I was proud of her for. But there's, there's a complication in that. So I think I'm always trying to go back in time by using these images to create my own endings, like a storytelling, new narratives. But yeah, I've lost a lot of my memory recall, you know, and um, so why not use different versions of us, a little bit like puppets or like in a film or something fictional. And I think one of the only sculptural pieces that I've seen was in your Exeter Phoenix residency, the straw girl with the red shoes. Was that from your collection? So straw girl, it's a found mannequin that I've had for a while. The shoes are painted on, so um, but I, I reference red shoes a lot in my work over and over. And obviously there's Dorothy in the red and ruby slippers, which that whole world get referenced as a repeat. So Straw Girl, yeah, I had this like need to make this 3D version of Straw Girl, which was a work on paper, which I still have, luckily I decided to keep it, the original one. And I have the sculpture as well. The straw I took from, I contacted a Devon Thatcher, called him up and said, look, would you be able to give me some old thatch from a house? It's gotta be old. He was like, you, you sure you want old thatch? It's really dusty and horrible and awkward to work with. Said, yeah, it's got to be old. So I said, yeah, sure, come to this like little hamlet in the middle of nowhere in a couple of days and my thatchers will just give you. So I turned up and I like filled my car with this old thatch. He was right, it was disgusting. <laughs> and I think it's been on a house. It's been on a house for about 30, 40 years, almost the same age as me. And I love this idea of taking this discarded old home, this protection and wrapping it around this girl and the connotations with the nursery you know nursery rhymes I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow this house down and, and Dorothy you know it it just made sense to use this old batch and I also there's no glue or anything in the sculpture it's just wrapping and tying so I made bunches and like tied them with remnants from vintage Laura Ashley curtains from the 1980s and use that to tie and wrap almost like a mummy. And it, it was like a bit like a bird, you know, taking twigs and bringing them and creating it. It made perfect sense when I was making it. I haven't made another sculpture since, but I really enjoyed it. 
And wow, that residency at Exeter Phoenix and Matthew Burrows, Matt Burrows, because there's two Matthew Burrows. Matthew Burrows, artist support coach, is not Matt Burrows, curator at Exeter Phoenix. Matt Burrows is a different people. But Matt Burrows at Exeter Phoenix Gallery is just so fantastic. And that whole experience was incredible, actually, because he gave me space and time to A, make the best sculpture I've ever made, and also, I made the biggest painting I've ever made. Sure, I destroyed it, cut it up into small pieces, <laughs> but I made it. And I, you know, it was almost like, again, a technical exercise. I had this small collage, and I was like, can I hand draw this collage at a scale of, what was it? It was um, 200 by 340 wow. <laughs> on two, two panels, two panels. But can I do it by hand without any projection? And I could, you know. Amazing. And I was like, well, why did I do that? <laughs> that's, take, that's taken me a whole week. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of like a technical exercise, of like, can I do that? Like, does it have any work to hand draw something that you might be able to project? Or, you know, it's a question. And it, you know, I answered it on some levels for myself. But also it's just, yeah, incredible to be given that space. And it was a public-facing residency as well, so people were walking into the space and talking to me all the time. In the evening, so from like five, we shut it, but um, so I often worked later, the late afternoon evenings, but during the day, people would be coming in and chatting to me, which was great because it was like having to do a public talk all the time and to articulate your ideas and your processes to multiple audiences constantly. Someone who'd been an artist for decades would come in and talk to me, and then a, a seven-year-old girl would come and chat to me with her mum. You know, so that was lovely. It was really interesting. I loved that. Doesn't sound like you really got very much work done though during the day. No, I used to turn up at about four. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely is difficult to work like that, but it's a challenge and it it feeds the work in a different way. You're graduating from your master's at the Royal College of Art this year, a very controversial year, as it is a final two-year course, which has now been cut into a one-year course, scrapping the dissertations, and your end-of-year show clashes with the new one-year students. So you're having an off-site degree show at a later date. Could you tell me about your own experience at the RCA and whether the awful treatment of the students of which the RCA is gaining a reputation has impacted you at all? I know it's a controversial question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So they have cut it to one year. I've not really met anybody in the, in the current first year. I just haven't really had the time to kind of get to know them. But so I can't comment on the content of the course. I think it's it feels like it's more intense, like it's more packed in, certainly, because their timetable is different to ours. Their degree show does not clash with ours, but what's happened is that they've given the new first years the main RCA painting building for their show, and the final second years, all of us across every discipline in the RCA are going off-site to, I think, like the Truman Brewery, and it's in July rather than June. I mean, for me personally, um, they only just told us that and only told us the dates recently, change of dates, and it completely clashes with my next solo show. So I cannot show my newest work, for example. I'm having to borrow back work to be shown. 
luckily the works that I'm borrowing back are some of my best and they have never been shown in London before so it's not the end of the world but it's not what we all imagine you know and you'd think that they would take some care with the final second years to make it special but it it feels like um we've just sort of been discarded really that we're not the new program so but what I would say is that I think the fault probably lies with the RCA as a bigger kind of machine rather than the tutors. The tutors and staff that I have encountered and everyone, most people say the same, are amazing. And I've learned a lot from my tutors. But the dissertation has been such... I never thought I could write an academic essay and I've never written one before I wrote my dissertation. And it really? Never. Never written an essay. I've never done a footnote. Before. I'm so surprised. It's incredible. I've never written like that and I I was terrified and I absolutely loved it and the way it I wrote it very again sort of very sporadically sort of in bed in the morning before the kids would get up or like just before I went to sleep and was totally exhausted a bit on trains I wrote everywhere in bits which is probably why it had that format in the end it's sort of quite fragmented format but I think the way that a more longer form academic approach to writing, what that can feed into your practice, I think losing that is very bad. And I did, you know, one of the first years in a crypt was taken on really sad that I'm not going to be writing a dissertation. I think it's incredibly short sighted. I think the role qualifier used to be three years, then they cut it to two, and now it's one, which just seems absolutely insane in my opinion and I think they're shooting themselves in the foot completely. I think it has survived for a very long time on its name anyway. The quality of teaching is incredibly high, that's all I would say. The interrogation I've had in my practice has been significant. That's my personal experience. Maybe it's because it was really the right time for me. I I have worked very hard but I think it's a great sadness that they've cut it down to one year and I think everyone in my year deserves to be in the main painting space for our degree show. It really is sad. For lots of them who are much younger than me, it's their big moment, their their big show. It's their opportunity to show those big collectors, those important artifices who always come to the RCA show, what they're made of. So I hope they will still come to the off-site show. I'm sure it will have less footfall, but I hope that people will make the effort to come and see it. And it's such a shame that they're doing it in the Truman Brewery. I know it's a bigger space, but it's East London. That's not even anywhere near the college. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I, because I am so busy with children and balancing everything, doing shows and the, the course, I was thinking, oh, you know, come January, I'm going to start a really big piece of work in my in my studio space in the Battersea building because it's going to be shown there. It'd be nice to have made the work there or at least have it back and forth. But now it's not long before, you know, moving out of that. It just feels like actually, I'm not sure that's so important now because it's not, it doesn't feel like our building. But, you know, I wish them well on their new one year course. But I fear it lose lose a lot. Yeah, you've spoken a bit about your dissertation a few times and I feel like that kind of tied up so many ideas that they were just kind of at the back of your mind 
and then you wrote your dissertation and they all just came together and I feel like it made you understand your own practice a lot more yeah it completely transformed the way I can articulate my work from from the the act of making the choice of the images I'm using being able to talk about theory and theories which are important understanding the choices you make in the studio I just can't imagine having not written that honestly and pay all that money to then leave without that it's just crazy you might as well go and do a couple of short courses I think I mean I could be wrong and again like you say it's quite a controversial subject but if I'm honest I just want it to be over now it's kind of sad to feel like that isn't it but I just kind of want it to be over now it's been good and it's um but it's not been yeah, amazing but i've learned a lot and the dissertation has been the the most incredible thing and uh Gemma blackshaw who is actually also devon based but goes between devon and london she as my tutor has been fundamental my first year tutor stephen clayden he's incredible another brilliant artist and this year i've got milena trajanovich who's brilliant you know i'm I'm overwhelmed by the people who have been teaching me. And I think that's what the Royal College can still do, is it can still get these great people to come and teach them. Yeah, having exposure to those kinds of tutors, I've heard that the tutors are incredible, and that is Mm. great. But that's kind of the only thing that they've got going for them at the moment, which is really sad because they've built up such an incredible reputation over the years, and it just feels like now they're just in it for the money rather than Mm. nurturing the next generation of artists. Oh, definitely. It's definitely a big money machine, for sure. You know, I'm just so grateful that I got the Elizabeth Greenshield Foundation grant because I actually don't know how I would have paid for my second year. I probably could have paid for it now because I've sold some works at shows and stuff. But before that, I would have really struggled to pay my fees at all. And actually, without the grant, I probably wouldn't have done the course at all because it is so expensive. And, you know, even a postgraduate student loan doesn't cover the fees. They're so high. They were nine and nine and a half thousand a year wow and you don't get much of your money really you get like three or four tutorials a year and here i think that the new course is different so i think it is much more intensive i think you know the painting staff are pretty great people and they really do care about the students i think it's more about the kind of like you say it's the money machine which is guiding the decision making oh well graduate later this year <laughs> and at least you got your work back for the show that's amazing yeah I got some because I put a call out on my Instagram story like saying god can anyone lend me the work some work back because it's really sad not to show your newest work in your degree show but I cannot change this now I don't want to change it I'd rather just show something I'm proud of that's not been shown in London but has already sold and yeah the best collectors will always lend, and they do, and they have, and they, they reach back out to me if they get a course. I've got four or five people ready to lend who are all in London, so it'll be fine. So I witnessed firsthand the rigorous process that your work undergoes with your first online solo exhibition with Liminal called No Place Like Home in 2021. You created a painting, especially for the exhibition, which began as a faithful reproduction of a collage, which then mutated and shrunk in size over the course of a month. At several points, you told me that it was finished. However, the next morning, I would wake up to an email of new images after you'd worked on it overnight. It seemed agonizing. (laughs) 
but you are wrestling it into being and in all honesty it was truly fascinating for me to see this transformation do you often work in this way or do some come easier than others you know what I actually think I do work quite regularly like that and it's funny that um, the director recently worked with Irina Gerdman at Westling Gallery and we've become quite close friends like you and I have she would laugh at this, I think, and I know she's going to listen to this, but she would laugh because I literally have done the same with her. Like, I would send her paintings that say, finish, it's finished, and literally, like, minutes sometimes later, no, 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 I absolutely have to rewrite. Oh, my God, this is awful. Like, and I remember the, probably the most, like, the most substantial painting, like, in terms of steps forward for me in that show in Sweden was, a big painting called, it's a very long title, but we call it Purgatory, but it's got a longer title. But the painting, I struggled so much with it. At the end, it actually made me feel a bit sick looking at it. Like, I hated it. Absolutely hated it, to the point where I was, I was embarrassed to show her. And I was like, don't, don't worry, you don't need to show it, you don't need to show it. I have reworked that painting 10 times, and I thought it was finished, it's literally 10 times. Turns out it was one of the best paintings in the show. But it's that, and the same with that painting for your show, that Lemon Drops painting, which I love. I love that painting. Really proud of that. It's crazy changes. And do you know what? I often photograph my work as I change it. And I have thought, well, I should do a little animation of like the changes of one painting. Just quite funny, particularly that one. It went through crazy changes. Oh, it went through. <laughs> <laughs> the most extreme changes possible <laughs> but it was incredible to watch it was truly fascinating because like it was a real insight into your mind and the way that you work which is so unique you know everyone has their own way mm. of working and it's this whole creation from destruction that was like my first real glimpse into into that side of your practice yeah and actually that the linen that I used for that painting had been another painting oh really yeah Never shown it. It was another painting that was finished. Wow. An even bigger transformation than I thought. (laughs) I think I do flip about a little bit. I didn't have like ADHD or anything like that, I don't think, but I do struggle with keeping my mind on one thing. So I do move around in my thought process a lot. Um, I genuinely don't know where work is going to end up. So I suppose what you're witnessing is, is that process. And I also kind of want it to come to a close because it's also quite painful because I want to make a great painting for whatever show it is. And I don't want to disappoint anyone and I want it to be really great for myself. But I I think in an ideal world, I would probably start work and literally have like a year to work on them. You know, maybe one day, if I'm in a position that that might be possible, I can't do it right now, but I would love to just have more time. Because time and layers, veiling, unveiling, hiding, revealing, these processes, I understand them so much more now as part of my practice, and they they do take time. It would be really difficult for me to say, I will make a new painting in one month for your show. Because I almost need to have, it's almost like a slow cooker, like I need to have lots of things in pots and then something will come out. And yeah, I'm understanding that more. So like I have behind me, I have 
two large paintings which are in progress and I imagine one of them will be finished in the next six weeks, I hope, for a show. But I've been working on it for about three months, four months, but I think it would be better if I had a whole year with it. Because like you say, and I think, so I mean, the group show could be Holdsworth Gallery, which is uh, this month in January as well. They have a painting which, may or may not get hung, but they have a painting at the gallery which on the back of the painting is little girl's knees. <laughs> and the knees are from the huge painting I did at Exeter Phoenix Gallery. And it's just these little knees that you can see on the back. So there's this kind of, again, that this painting that I created as a result of that destruction, in my opinion, is one of the best paintings I've ever made. So there is a sacrifice, a willing sacrifice, to know that, yeah, this might be good, but if I can transform it and make it better, it's just an element of risk-taking, I think, or a willing of transformation, or almost like gambling. Like, I've got this much money, but if I throw that in, what might I get next? And often I don't win, but sometimes something much better will, will, will be created. Um, so I like that element of risk-taking. So yeah, I do do it a lot. Very occasionally works do come quicker. And again, I made a painting on raw canvas and it was called, I didn't want to go. And it's a repeat, an image that a girl I painted over and over and I kept getting it wrong. And then this time I painted her and it probably took me two hours. And she was done. But it's not just two hours because I I tried to paint her four or five times before I discarded them. So occasionally I think when I do come to the work, I've already navigated a lot of difficulty before and then I touched it and it's quite quick, but usually the paintings are fairly laboured. You said that if you don't push the work to the brink, it doesn't do anything and I think that that's still very valid in your practice, isn't it? Like you kind of push it almost to its breaking point, which is such a mm -hmm. scary thing to do. Like you say, it's a gamble, it's yeah. a risk taking because you could destroy it completely. Yeah, totally. And it's that, it's that pivot moment that I find really exciting. Almost like, so I was in a, a crit, my most recent crit was RCA, which I said in the crit, I described the fact that like, I'll paint this painting of a girl, or a saint, or a group of children. And it's like faithful reproduction. Drawing is probably my greatest strength, so I find it really easy to draw uh, without projections, without tracing, so I can just copy. So I'll do that really quickly, and I describe that moment of destruction. So like I have this pretty picture, which was my life before, my mum's death and then the destruction is almost like a replica of the illness of the decimated body, the utter despair of that moment. But not just the moment of her death, but the run up, the few months, which was, I cannot even, you know, it, well, it's in my dissertation, some of it, you know, but the run up of the illness, and then the destruction, the actual passing is like a release. And I was describing 
this act of the, the bleach or the rubbing out or whatever it is, and placing the painting in the same space that I found myself in, of this utter despair, and this complete moment of having to rebuild. So like, my everything I knew about myself, my whole home, my whole family was utterly destroyed, obliterated, and I had to like completely find who I was again. And I think I do that to the paintings. I make the paintings come to a point of despair, and I have to save them. I have to bring them through this pain, this unknown landscape utter pointless well, you know why why have you done that to a painting that was so nice you know that was such a pretty picture why have you done that when i first started doing it i'd take paintings big paintings off a frame fold them up and put them in the car and drag them out into the garden my husband would be like what are you doing stop but it's only actually only a few weeks it's only been like three weeks where i've really been thinking about that but that moment where I destroy, I'm bringing the painting, the work, to be aligned with that moment in my life, to be that that person, that that moment where everything just completely, everything goes grey, everything is silent, everything is gone, and then then I go through sort of an act of rebuilding, like a pilgrimage, like a journey. Of bringing them back, building them back up to something of worth, that really becomes such an important part of what I'm doing. And I've only really been able to fully understand that really recently. So that act of destruction is me mimicking illness and death and the experience of loss and traumatic experience of loss and how to build yourself back up because the work is like a sort of therapy I suppose I don't need a talking therapist because I do it in my work all the time I'm so and I'm so grateful for that I think it's a really beautiful metaphor for grief because you're creating the works and they're beautiful they're pretty pictures you destroy them but then you bring them back but then still with that memory of what happened that like memory of the destruction the memory of the trauma and that is grief you rebuild yourself but as you're a different person once you've experienced that kind of grief and you've experienced those traumatic events you're the same but different yeah and then you can still see through these kind of veils the original image and you can still see the damage but then they morph and change and become something other. Yeah, which is what I what we have to do in life. We all have to do it. Like experience trauma and everyone experiences trauma. You know, the whole world has just gone through an enormous trauma. It's kind of physically manifesting itself in this kind of layering and uh, things that which are left behind and and it becomes like a noise, just kind of again, and and then, but then through that, 
things pop out and they will sit so like the painting in my show with you the, the girl with the dead bird I it's also important that they sit away from the chaos as well so I do make paintings like that and I had a couple in my weaponing show they have their place they don't always get destroyed but quite often it's a child on its own that we don't destroy which I'm, I'm not really uh, I'm not really sure what that's about, but I've noticed that if I paint a child on its own, quite often I will leave it. But if it's a group, I can destroy it more. Time will tell what that's about. Yeah, that's very true, because the group exhibition that I did last year uh, took my power in my hand. There was mm. the little girl, uh, Feather for Your Birthday hat, yeah. Again, a beautiful, very, very softly painted piece that wasn't destroyed at all. And she was by herself. Yeah. Hmm. And there's three, three lone children from my Stockholm show. None of them were destroyed either. So that's a repeat. I also wanted to ask you, Dancing in the Dark, the largest painting in our current exhibition, there's a big section that is very very loose and you can see the raw canvas Mm -hmm. underneath and I wondered had that undergone destruction or was that bit left undone on purpose yeah that one was undone on purpose and there's um there's another painting a little bit like that which I'm extremely proud of of mine called grandmother's footsteps sometimes the drawing holds for me the line holds the emotion in a way that occasionally I will just decide that it doesn't need anything else. I ummed and ahed a lot about reworking or working into it, but I couldn't because I didn't want to lose that little girl in particular. And I didn't want to lose the movement and there's light in that image. So sometimes when I'm rubbing out or bleaching, I'm trying to bring light in Whereas dancing in the dark, ironically in the dark, but there's so much light in the picture and space that I, you know, I decided that the drawing underneath was the painting and didn't need anything else. And Grandmother's Footsteps is the same. And actually, I made Grandmother's Footsteps at the RCA studios. And I remember there was a few students in the year above me who said, don't do any more. It's done. And I was like, no. And it's so wild. And that moment, I recognised it again in Dancing in the Dark, and I decided to leave that because especially that little child in the centre, in the light, she's, um, and to the side of me here is another little girl, sort of a ghost girl in another painting. And I just, the translucency, you know, sometimes they just don't need um, to be bleached. Although there is removal in that painting, and attack in a certain sense, but not. But then there's that moment of nurture and deciding to leave something. Mm, it was really exciting for me to see like some raw canvas that hadn't hadn't been bleached that you had left. It felt almost like you'd really restrained yourself from touching that area. Mm. And like you say, there's so much movement. It's so soft and delicate, and you really connect with that central little girl that's just she's just totally lost in the moment and you can you're almost there arms swaying with her 
It's beautiful. And I would say also that moment, that teetering on the edge, that sort of gamble moment that we were just talking about, also happens when you decide to stop, because that's also a gamble. Because I would have lost it. I would have lost that image. And sometimes, um, yeah, I decide that that image is, says everything it needs to say. And, it was, and if I change it, it won't be that room with those dancing children. And that painting is about that room with those dancing children. I very specifically wanted to work with this image of, and in fact, I've made a, a monotype of, from the same photographic image previously, a couple of years ago, in 2020. Um, so it's an image I've worked from before, but I've never made a painting from. Yeah, I just love that little girl in the centre. She's so, she's only just there, but that's the thing I didn't want to lose. So I saw on Instagram recently, that a painting of yours had spent a few weeks out in your garden. Yeah, I've just bought a couple in. <laughs> to mature out in your garden. <laughs> I've also seen you painting our fresco or maybe bleaching our fresco mm-hmm. and also working in your studio, obviously, on your kitchen table at the RCA. Um, where is your mm-hmm. location of preference? And I've also seen you painting on stretched and unstretched canvases. So I wondered which one you preferred. I think I probably prefer painting in the studio. Having to move things around for different reasons is quite exciting because it adds a different sort of dynamic to the the work. Ideally, I would have a big enough studio that I didn't need to move works around so much. Obviously, if I'm using kind of dangerous materials like bleach and toilet cleaner and throwing inks, and I mean, I throw stuff around here, but the one thing that I have noticed is that when I take work away from the studio and take it into the garden, I take bigger risks. Once it's laid out in that garden, I can do whatever I want to it. You know, and I get the broom out, the bleach comes out, loads of water. You know, everything you shouldn't be putting on an oil painting of that. I'll, you know, I'll walk on it, the dog will walk on it. <laughs> God. And then it sometimes it will hang on the line. You know, like I said, I had three paintings in there hanging out there in the frost through, for a month. <laughs> I know, again, it's that kind of willing to see if it will survive. Go on then, you're throwing all this stuff at it. And now you have to survive and to rebuild yourself. And again, it's a bit like that sort of, moment of destruction but I'm almost I'm putting it through its paces and again not not every painting does that I mean I have plenty of paintings that have been started and finished in the studio often the karma works uh, are made in that way and a lot of the children a lot of smaller paintings including the girl with the dead bird in, in this show are made at the kitchen table so the smaller paintings, I often will make at home because obviously I don't have a space at home to paint. So from a, a space restriction, you know, I'll, I'll sometimes do that. Or sometimes works on paper made at home. But then I have I've worked on paper laid out to my side right now on the floor. About fifteen of them that I've just started, and um, all fifteen, about two will will survive or become anything of value. But I do think I take bigger risks at home because I think when you're in the studio you know there's a kind of I'm now in my studio I'm in artist mode 
Whereas when I take them home, I do more domestic things to them, like I clean them and I wash them and dye them, which is very interesting. That started sort of last year, really, that kind of movement between studio spaces and doing different things to them. Yeah, it's interesting process. Instead of it being an inconvenience to take them off their bars and stick them in the car, I get quite excited about that moment. It's like, um, now you're ready. You've matured in the studio enough, and now, Daddy, I'm going to take you home into the garden, <laughs> and you're ready for your next stage. They don't always get put through the garden destruction. <laughs> the garden destruction. And I love it when I do. <laughs> you know, like, it's really funny for me as a gallerist hearing the way that artists treat their own work you know like you're walking on it your dog's walking on it you're leaving it out in the garden for rain and frost to ruin it and then comes into the gallery and I'm so precious about them and the transformation it goes from just this thing that you beat and <laughs> to this yeah. absolute precious object it's so funny it's crazy isn't it I know again this, this happened recently in Stockholm because they're using white gloves to handle my work. Oh, wow, that's I extreme. Came, <laughs> that's I, know, proper. I, came in and I, I said, oh, that one needs restretching. And they said, oh, yes, get that art handler. I was like, no, 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 no. And I just walked up to it and took it off the wall. <laughs> I started bashing it about and they were sort of standing there going, oh, my God, oh, my God. And they'd already sold. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> me in the end. But um, at times, I'm like, I just can't look. I cannot look yeah <laughs> that's brilliant like, taking them out and like bashing it around um <laughs> it's so funny honestly I wouldn't I wouldn't share some of the things I do to the work <laughs> that's part of this as well we all do it all artists do that for own work I think yeah I think they do but you know it just takes on another life and it as soon as it goes from your studio your garden or wherever to into yeah. the gallery then it just it becomes this whole different yeah object that is precious yeah. and to be careful with and yeah then the artist comes in and chucks it on the floor room as a stark reminder it was my first experience with white gloves I have to say but like you know I can dig that it's good get for all the white gloves please <laughs> <laughs> fine noted I need to uh, make a note that I need to buy some white gloves yeah, I'll buy you some, yeah. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> Yeah, I still haven't got any white gloves. I don't know. I feel like that's the performance that the art world does to show how serious they are. So I feel like it's unnecessary. It depends on what you've got in your hands, but well, I think this 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 gallery also represent like really significant, really really famous artists. So they've got to have white gloves for that. But it was my first experience for them. You know. So the color blue repeatedly comes up in your works. What draws you to this colour and do you use it as a metaphor and do you think that it's a period in your practice or do you think it will be a constant in your palette? That's a question that I get asked quite frequently about the colour blue and again through the writing of the dissertation I brought quite a lot of the ideas of the colour blue into my writing and understood it better. Yes it is a metaphor but not a conscious one it was again something that happened naturally through my research I discovered the writer Maggie Nelson and her book Bluest which is just so 
so gorgeous, it's unbelievable. Again, Gemma Blackshaw, my tutor, introduced me to Maggie Nelson. And that text in particular really helps me to understand this repeats of the blues. She writes the whole book in these kind of tiny little paragraphs, hundreds of them, and they're all about the longing, the searching for the colour blue. And she talks about blue as the colour of death and about water and approaching death being like a large wave. And there's a lot of references to water in my work and has been over the years. Again, I, I talked about the memory of Joni Mitchell's album Blue, which was one of my mum's favourites. And one of my earliest memories is looking at the old guitars by Picasso, which we had a reproduction of in our downstairs toilet. <laughs> and that blue period is probably one of my first introductions to art, or like looking at anything that you would call art. Like, you know, like lots of people, Picasso is one of the first ones issued in the Middle Country. There is something about water and the underworld just descending into a melancholy, but something that pulls you. It's almost like a, it's a very seductive colour. So in a sense, it's easy to work with blue. You know, I love Lisa Bryce's blue work. It is easy to work with blue, but to understand that I do use it probably in a metaphorical sense has again come out of the dissertation. Veils of blue, this kind of sinking underwater. I recently made a group of works on paper called Water Babies. And again, one of the paintings with Pippi Holdsworth is called Water Baby. And I'm referencing the book Water Babies and the film. I don't know if you saw it when you were a child, Water Babies, but it was an animation. And then when, no, it's real life to begin with, and then they, the child jumps into the water and it becomes an animation, like another world. And this metaphor that perhaps the child has died as it's jumped into the water, it's become something else, going off on a bit of a tangent. But yes, it is metaphorical. Whether I think it's a period, probably not, if I was going to guess. I think it could be a constant shrouding, a kind of a... Maybe it's a little bit of a comfort, actually, that colour. I don't know. Ultramarine blue. I've got so many blues in front of me right now. I'm just looking at them now. I've been working with a colour called Old Delft Blue by Old Holland. It's one of my favourite colours at the moment. I love it. I love tiles. And I love, like, Delft tiles. I also love that... Yeah, the blue and white, like the Willow China Delft tiles. I love that kind of almost domestic side of blue as well. Your work speak of the universal yearning for a mother, for that closeness we see splashed across film, magazines and advertising. In a way, we all grieve the fantasies that never materialised, especially when it comes to our childhood. In this way, I think you're very personal work becomes so relatable. Do you agree? And what has been the response to your work in this sense? Yeah, I do agree. I think when you're working with a kind of universal or known archival material, 
you're tapping into you're like trying to hook people in so people will often say oh i remember images like that or i used to have a dress like that and sometimes people are immediately moved by by that recognition you know so it's a bit like um you know when you listen to a song on the radio depending on what kind of heartbreak or you're going through you always kind of imagine that it's about you and I think when you're, you're you're using public archival material, there is always this ability to sort of allow a, a narratives to be picked up, you know. And then sometimes, you know, I have had a couple of people really, really need to come back. And one person actually cried <laughs> talking to me, wow. which was deeply moving for me as well. But I think also this is a it's also a question for me because. Um, from a critical point of view, like something that I've been asked during my MA is that if you're using easily likable imagery, so like a mother and child, a cutesy kind of 60s image or 50s image, it's quite an easily seductive image, an easily likable image. However, since that question was asked of me, I think I've moved on in my practice. But using these kind of super sweet images, I do think about it critically about like well I now know why actually so I'm sort of already answered the question but it is but it but it was a sort of a question about why would you use nostalgic imagery and is nostalgia a problem is it nostalgia I don't think it is nostalgia picking up because we because we've spoken earlier in this about the the bodily presence of them for me personally but yeah it opens up people will recognize things you know, to my side, I've made a painting from collage. The collage is a mixture of images, some from a children's book, you know. And if you had that book as a child, you might recognise a character from it. I don't know. I don't know whether it helps the reading of the work or whether it's negative because people will immediately feel something that... You know, sometimes people will laugh a bit at the work, but it's not supposed to ever be funny. That's one thing that the work is, that the intention is never, it's not supposed to ever be funny. But sometimes, especially like the knitting patterns, the rewrite knitting patterns, sometimes they'll get a chuckle, but then they might, they might start laughing and they'll be like, oh, actually, it's kind of quite dark really, because then they'll, it's funny to start with, and then they might notice what child's doing with their hands. There's a detail that's not, not so funny. That's an interesting reaction. I would never have never have said that people would have laughed at your work. I will never forget this. I remember doing, I made a, a drawing and then an etching of my, my mum the day before she died. And for me, it's clearly this kind of dying woman. And, you know, I'm really proud of it. And one day someone looked at it and sort of laughed at it. And said, look at that funny man with the glasses. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, this is wrong. This is not the right reading. <laughs> Maybe it comes from a place of like them being uncomfortable. And sometimes people have that kind of funny reaction where they like laugh in the face of something that's actually really quite uncomfortable for them. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the thing. Also, there's that whole thing about mm-hmm. scenes of 
domestic moments not being a valuable thing to talk about you know in the kind of patriarchal art world that we are a part of it traditionally was seen Mm. as something that wasn't serious it wasn't a serious thing to talk Mm. about because it didn't affect the men that were buying or looking at the art and so I wonder whether it's a bit of that as well a bit of um ingrained prejudice that comes out and then they read the work yeah maybe overwhelmingly I think that people read my work in a way that probably it's quite literal and people do read it in a way that I meant it to be read so what do you enjoy most about your practice the thing that I love most about it is um, mainly just that I can do it just the privilege of doing it which we spoke about earlier and then also genuinely just not really knowing what I'm going to make. It's just the greatest freedom and makes it so exciting. You know, for money, before I was selling my work, I used to sell vintage antique clothes and objects on eBay for money. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've done it for years just to, like, give me a little bit of, you know, pay for the kids' birthday presents and the extras swimming lessons, all that kind of stuff. And I love looking for treasure, you know, a bit like a magpie or whatever. I think I would have been quite happy to have been an archaeologist as well. I often go into rivers and digging on riverbeds and finding incredible things. I love, I love that, trying to find a gem. And I think by not knowing what I'm going to create, although it is quite a hard way of working, there's a lot of frustration. It's almost like hunting for treasure. That I really genuinely don't know what's next. That's the thing that keeps you coming back. It keeps me feeling excited about it. And so what do you find most frustrating about your practice? Lack of time. Completely and utterly. No, because even though my children aren't babies anymore, they are 10 and 8. And they're young children. I'm still in the throes of motherhood. And as a woman, no matter how supportive your partner is, you are the primary, in in my setup anyway, and in in many, and not all of course, but in my setup, I am the primary caregiver, even though my, my husband is the most incredible father, the girls are so lucky, I am lucky, but it's primarily mum, you know, if they're sick, they want to be with me. If they're scared, they want to be with me. So there is always a problem with time. The flip of that is that the urgency that's created has given the practice a depth of language that I might not have got without a complication of being a mother. There's fits and starts urgent, urgent need to create something. You know, in the pandemic, there were times I was working at the kitchen table. And this might make me sound like a bad parent, but I'm not at all. But sometimes I would have a child actually screaming in my face as I was making it. Not, and I'm, I wasn't ignoring her, but for different reasons. That's how intense some of the making was. That urgent need to focus 
because of course I couldn't go out and find stuff for eBay anymore. I couldn't go and find rare Hermes scarves and cassette cardigans. I couldn't, they're all shut. So all I had was the focus of the work. And that's what transformed everything for me. The pandemic shut the charity shop. I couldn't find treasure. I couldn't find treasure anymore to sell. I remember I had a boyfriend that years ago. He said to me, why are you wasting your time going out, finding stuff to sell on eBay? And I was like, well, because I haven't got enough money to pay my rent, you know. But during the pandemic, all I had was this just tiny square at the kitchen table and this urgent, urgent need to get something down, to make a mark. Honestly, it's completely transformed my whole life. And then when people started responding well to those marks, then I, the urgency and the sporadic nature of the practice gained an autonomy, it didn't matter. In fact, it was a strength. And perhaps the layering and the fragmentation of it all is, is a natural way to deal with such a complicated kind of life as an artist, as a mother. I never had the money to pay for childcare. My children didn't go to a nursery until they got it for free. You know, I never, I could never afford it. And so I've never had any help. And therefore that's why it's been so long before I've been able to really focus. But I'm not frightened by a lack of time. It's frustrating that it doesn't stop me. And I don't complain about it. And in fact, I have said a couple of times that I think it's actually a positive. Because if I have a normal day in Devon and I'm not going to London, I'm not going anywhere else or whatever, if I have a normal day, I get to the studio probably by sort of nine, sometimes nine thirty. And I have to leave at two thirty to go and pick the kids up. And often, you know, as a mum yourself, you know, there's like and as your child gets older, there's more admin, mum admin, you know, there's always after school club things to book or there's special lunch boxes they need for trips you know it's constant there's a constant call on a mother's time but i just work around it you know i just i'm a great multitasker <laughs> really really good at it so yeah i found that it's a strength rather than a weakness but it is a frustration of course and um you know the sad thing is that when I do get more time, the the bad part of that is because my children are older, you know, and my children then are older, and it's always trying to nurture this period of my life where I'm getting busier and being asked to do shows, and that's really great. But my children will be teenagers before I know it, and so trying to relish and be careful not to lose this time into frustration or, yeah. So it is frustrating, but it's become part of the practice almost. I think that a lot of people can relate to the fact that you said about you trying to work while you've got a screaming child on one side and you're desperately trying to focus. I think that that just speaks mm -hmm. to the experience of a mum a bit like you were saying earlier with your Exeter Phoenix gallery residency those people coming in and distracting you taking your focus away it's a bit like children they do the same they and you've got to 
be able to drop your focus mm-hmm. and then pick it back up again. And I think so many people will be able to relate to that because it's something that you have to do constantly. And it's such a skill yeah. to learn that. Yeah, you're right. It's just kind of, it's like a constant noise of need for a child or, or, or children and then having to focus on something and not to give up and just to keep going back and back and back. And whether it's just the PowerPoint you're making for work or whether it's a painting, whatever you're doing. In fact, yesterday, you know, I was trying to just take an hour just to think about this podcast we were doing today and you know, I had two children next to me, both on roller skates, just going up and down. Up and down. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm happy. Oh, what's it? there's nothing in the house. Mum, go shopping. You know. <laughs> um, constant battle, but one I wouldn't change. And I actually think if I hadn't had children, if all the things which I find complicate life, I just wouldn't be making this work without it. So I just try and embrace it rather than see it as a problem. But of course it is a bit of a problem if I had loads of time. I can't even imagine what work I could make if I didn't have these distractions. I had a huge warehouse for the studio and all the time in the world where I just can't imagine what that would be like. But maybe by the time I'm like 50, so in sort of eight years time I will probably have a lot more time and and I hope if I'm lucky enough to stay well and stay alive which is one of my primary focuses on life if I can just be well enough to wake up in the morning and not be in pain and not be nauseous from sort of when my children are older from like 50 if I could just live till I'm 80 just 30 years of having more time to make work would be the greatest gift. And I just pray that I can do it so much because it's all I want. I think the last line of my dissertation summed it all up. I think it was like, sometimes I feel like I might be dying, um, <laughs> but hopefully that's the trauma speaking. I just want to love my children in pain. And it just is really simple like that. I think we want much else. It's nice. So can you tell me more about your current solo exhibition at Liminal Gallery, Dancing in the Dark? Just wanted to add that it's kind of loosely based on a birthday party, which your work is very melancholic. It has this kind of sadness to it. But then often you refer to birthday parties or parties. And so I wondered if you could just speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I have often worked with the idea of a birthday party. I think the marking of time is always kind of like a quite a melancholic moment. Also with a birthday party, for me personally, having two full-time working parents my whole life, I, I often had childminders and at one point we had no care and quite often like a birthday party is one of the, maybe the only times I'd sort of see my parents, in a, in a sense. There's also this kind of anxiety about birthday parties. So, like, who's going to turn up to them? Will anyone turn up? I think I want, I made a work last year, and I think it was called Turning Up on the Wrong Day, and it was two little girls turning up, all dressed up. It's like turning up to a birthday party that 
you've got the wrong day, like it's next Saturday, sorry, you need to go away. I remember doing that with my mum. She took me to this birthday party and I'm all dolled up. It's like the wrong day. <laughs> it's disappointing. Yeah, and I guess I started, I'm very interested in notions of dressing up and uh, costume. Um, just kind of putting on a mask and being jolly. Maybe it's about having to be happy and having to perform and putting on a bit of a show. The title of the show, Dancing in the Dark, refers to a, a memory I have, a very, one of my very earliest memories. And it's something, it's one of those ones that just doesn't go away. And it's dancing with my cousins on a bed um, with a record player, a little record player, and it's dancing to this Bruce Springsteen song, Dancing in the Dark. How much I loved that song. Yeah, like, the song is also about renewal and becoming someone else. And it just, as I was making the painting, it just was in my head. I just couldn't get it out of my head. And I think that it's this idea of dancing as a staged party, which happens over and over again in the work. It just felt like the right title. And then and then because in the last two years I've repeatedly made work with party in the title or dressing up. I had a show in Oxford last year called uh, Come Dressed in Blue, for example. It's often references to coming prepared for something. Get prepared for a party. But maybe I don't think it's a birthday. I think it's probably a death day and it sounds really morbid but but the two are so intertwined in my head um, I don't know I've never I'm, I'm just thinking out loud right now but you know my mother died three days after her birthday and I remember making her a set of I didn't know what to give her on her birthday because she was about to die you know because obviously it was an assisted suicide so you need a date to get time and everything so like, what do I give her? So I, I, I wrote her a set of promises. Things I promised I would do. Um, I don't know if it's related, but this idea of the birthday as a repeat. And um, perhaps it's something to do with that. I'm not sure. And also I have, <laughs> when I was six, on my own sixth birthday, I remember I was trying to control the music during Pass the Parcel so that all of my friends got present. And my parents thought I was trying to make it land on me every time. And they got it completely wrong, told me off and put me in my bedroom on my in my own birthday party and I couldn't join in. Pretty traumatic memory that. They were nice memories, but they totally misunderstood that. I had a bit of trauma related to birthdays. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty horrible. Six years old. That's so mean. On your birthday. I was trying to be fair, and they just really misunderstood their own child. <laughs> I don't know. I want to say something deeply melancholy about birthdays. There's an element of uh, organised fun, which I think it never really goes yeah. entirely to plan. That's it. It's about the organised fun. So it's the art of it again. 
So, you know, you have the stage image, which I'm really drawn to. And just up on my studio wall, I'm looking at like an image of this incredible book about how to do a children's party, like how to do a great children's party. And I've made multiple works from this book. In fact, so I had this show, there's a work on paper called Pandemic Pandemic Party or Pandemic Dance Party. Pandemic Party. Yeah. So I have made a painting in the past called Pandemic Dance Party, which was like the first kind of proper oil painting I've made since I kept back to making work properly. And it's from this book about how to do a children's party. And yes, it's this stage, the children faking the the fun, you know. And I find that fascinating, that the stillness, that whole little, yeah, what that can promise. You're right, it's that forced fun, which I think I, I'm very drawn to. So that's all of my questions. So... Alexis Solgray, thank you so much for joining me today on the Liminal Gallery podcast. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Louise. It has been absolutely wonderful as ever. Oh, you're very welcome. Bye. Alexis Solgray's solo exhibition, Dancing in the Dark, is the fourth show in Liminal Gallery's new home at 34 Fort Hill in Margate. The exhibition continues until the 29th of January and we're open Thursdays 11 till 4pm, Saturdays 11 till 3pm and outside of these times by appointment. More information can be found on our website liminal-gallery.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Gallery podcast with me, Louise Fitzjohn, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode featuring Damien Flood, who will be part of our next group exhibition entitled Try a Little Tenderness. Bye for now. (laughs) 